0: Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Thank you for joining us this morning. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that you would worship with us. As we typically do, want to make note of our time of giving. You're able to give as you exit. You can scan the QR code and give. You can give online. You can give through text. Lots of many opportunities for you to give. A special note, and you'll hear a brief video at the end of the service about this, we are beginning our Annie Armstrong offering this month. This is a fundraiser for North American Mission Board, and our church goal is $2,000 to support church planting efforts here in North America. And so I want to encourage you to give towards this as you would like. You can give in your normal ways of giving, but I encourage you to pay special attention to this offering this month. Now, as we begin we are continuing our series on the road to Jesus. We're beginning this series of walking through the gospel story as we build up to Easter. The point of this series, what we hope occurs from this, what our prayer is, is that this is going to show us the gospel as we come to Easter. You'll notice that each of these steps is going to be looking at God, is looking at man and our sin, it's looking at Jesus, it's looking at the cross and the resurrection and faith. We are trying to build out this gospel message I hope and pray that as you hear that and as you pay attention to these sermons, you notice that we're walking you through the elements of a gospel message. We're walking you through what to say and how to proclaim the good news of Jesus. What better thing to focus on as we're coming up to Easter than the gospel that has saved you and I? What could be better to look at and to study as we move forward into Easter? You see, this story, this gospel message is central to our lives. That this is central to the story of the entire world, of the entire universe. You see, it's this story that leads us to pursue and to desire a better story in our lives. You see, something I found in the 32 years that I've lived on this earth, yes, I'm an expert, right? The 32 years that I've lived on this earth is that you and I desire a better story for our lives. You see, what we want, you and I want, is for our lives to be better, our lives to be improved. That if you look up the number one category of books you can buy, whether it's at a bookstore, Amazon, etc., the number one category that you'll find are books on self-help and personal improvement. You see, in our world today, we are captivated by trying to make ourselves better. This American ideal of pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's why we're so captivated by these underdog stories because we look at these stories and we see these are people who've made it. They have improved their position in life. They have won the race. This is why we pay attention to those stories. Even as I said, this has been woven into our story as Americans. You look at the cultural heritage we have as Americans, that we came over and we fought for our independence. We won our rights. We built this nation. We did this. Even now, we have that same motto that if you work hard, one day you'll have this American dream of a house with white picket fences, a beautiful green lawn, and neighbors that are just as depressed as you are. Work hard. One day you'll have all these material things that you've desired in your life. We pursue these things, this story, because we long for something to make us whole. We don't usually use those exact words, right? But we say things like, just a few more pounds and I'll have the exact body that I've always dreamed of. Just a few more dollars and I'll be comfortable. I have the life that I've always wanted. Just a few more years and I'll be able to retire and finally spend time with my family. You see, we consistently, in our words and our actions, we try to put together this better story in our lives, this better story of who we are through our own efforts and pursuits. Yet the truth is, We are never satisfied by these things. You see, our few more pounds, our few more dollars, our few more years continue to stretch and change. We become more and more discontent with who we are and with where we're going. Nothing is ever good enough for us. Even if we achieve these goals and desires of our heart, where does that leave us? we still hunger for more. I I would just ask you, is this all that we're supposed to exist for? Is what we exist for this constant pursuit of consumption and desire? Truly, I don't think that this is the storybook picture-perfect ending that we've written for our lives, that we constantly chase more and more Rather, I believe that if we're going to find this picture-perfect storybook ending, if we're going to find a better story for how we view our lives, how we live our lives, we have to really wrestle with how do we find fulfillment without chasing everything under the sun for pleasure and satisfaction. That's why I've titled today's sermon, A Better Story Through Christ. You see, I believe I believe there is only one way that we're going to find a better story in our lives, and it is through Jesus alone. If you're taking notes today, you better have written that down, because that is the key thing you need to understand today. That the only way you're going to find a better life is not through losing a few pounds, it's not through gaining a few dollars, it is not through anything but finding Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, it's only through him that we can stop this constant rat race and chase for more and more in our lives. He is the only one that can fully satisfy our desires for eternity. Now, you might say, well, Walter, you are 32 years old and you know nothing. That's fair. But here's the truth. I'm not the only one who feels this way. Beyond the fact that there are people here who would articulate this, Paul writer of most of the New Testament, felt this way in his life and his ministry. You see, he believed and said it quite consistently that only Jesus was going to make things right for him and for his heart. That only Jesus was going to be the answer to all the things that ailed him. It's this encouragement to the church that we'll study today here in the book of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as you can see on the screen. If you would, would you stand and let's read the text together as we begin to study God's Word. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. We're thankful for the story that you are weaving in our lives and how you are showing us the way to a better story. How you're showing who we are and who we are supposed to be in light of your love, grace, and mercy. Father, my prayer today is everyone who is hearing these words, whether they're in person or online, that they could see you for who you really are and understand who they are and who they are to be. Father, I pray that you open our hearts, make us receptive to the word of God, to the study of these scriptures, and that we could have all barriers removed between you and us so that we might freely repent of our sin and shame. Father, we're thankful for you we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as we begin this passage, you can see this is an interesting section of Scripture that Paul is writing for us. As we begin, I think we have to break this down into a couple of chunks for us to chew on, a couple of sections that describe not only our story, but the story of humanity that we see Paul writing about. You see, beginning in our first section, our point one is going to be that we are rebellious creation. We are a rebellious creation. You cannot tell our story without telling the story of rebellion. Look back at verse 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I hope you're taking notes, and you'll want to note that our first point is that we are rebellious creatures. As we enter this text, we've got to first orient ourselves to what's happening in the book. We're dropping right into the middle of the story, as it were, and Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and he's building out this understanding of who we are and what we're to do. Very simply, he's addressing this reality that we have to understand who we are before we know what we're to do. And this book really even follows that pattern as he's going through it, that the first half is really building out this theological understanding of our identity, kind of addressing who we are from the side of God. And then the second half is this emphasis on how we're to practice and live this identity, that if this is indeed who you are, this is what you are going to go and do. So Paul begins with this dramatic statement here that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. I looked back in the Greek to see what this would mean, and um, it means dead. I don't know if you are hoping for something expounding upon that, but it means dead. It means lifeless. It means gone. There is no hope. There is no moving forward. There is no life. That when he says dead, he truly means dead. As we're wrestling with the significance of that, I really felt the need that we need to camp out on this and understand something. Because I think it's so applicable to our culture and just to the world we live in. So many people in the church and outside of it think that our eternal destiny is tied to some type of balance system or scale. If I'm a good enough person, if I do good enough, if I'm just better than this guy, right? I'll be satisfactory enough to God to enter into heaven. That is a lie from the devil himself. One that he would be thrilled to have us worship. Because here's the truth. The truth is that dead men are good for one thing and one thing only, staying dead. Dead men are good at one thing, being dead and lying there. Our sin is so absolute that we are corrupted and polluted by it. And we cannot make things right with God by ourselves. There is no hope of us being good enough because we are dead. There is one way to heaven, and it's not through our work of making ourselves good. It will require someone from the outside to make us alive, to make us good. Paul begins with this because he's saying our story before Christ is hopeless. You are dead in your sin and trespasses, and there is no hope. He continues on and he's pointing to not only that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we are condemned by our actions and that we are ultimately worshiping something that is not God. See, he continues on by stressing the fact that all of us have walked this path of death and sinfulness. No one can escape it. We are all guilty of sin and shame. The truth is that there is no room for perfect people in the church Do you know why? Because not a one of us is perfect. This is why Jesus says, let he who is perfect cast the first stone. And if you remember that story, they all dropped their stones and went home. You see, no one can escape this fact that we are guilty of sin and shame. Even in this, we are guilty of our sin, we're guilty of our shame, but we are actively worshiping someone that is not God. You see, he references this prince of the power of the air. He's talking about Satan himself. You see, Satan has been meddling in the affairs of God and man and everything in between from the very beginning. He was there in the garden putting temptation in front of Adam and Eve. Yes, they chose to pursue it, but Satan dangled the carrot in front of them. And this passage describes the fact that Satan is actively working to keep us trapped in our sin and shame. He and his forces are laboring to ensure that we stay in bondage, rejecting God's grace. As if that's not enough, Paul tells us that we've lived in captivity to our desires in active rebellion against God. This is that language, children of wrath in practice the one that we trace our spiritual heritage to when we are in sin, we trace our heritage to Satan, not to God. That This is a corruption of the created order that we see throughout Genesis. God created everything and everyone. Why? So that we might know him and call him Father. Satan has wiggled his way in and adopted us and calls us his children, children of wrath. Simply put, this is who we are. This is who some of us were. We're a rebellious creation pursuing our own desires who then has the audacity to to say we need no God. We have moved past the need of a God in this world. Yet if we were honest and truthful to one another in the midst of our rebellion though we might have it all by our own standards and desires, we're empty, we're tired, we're worn down by this constant pursuit of self and our best story. You don't see anyone on social media talking about how much they need to grow. You don't see anyone talking about how tough their life is. Everything's perfect and wonderful. Yet if we're honest and were to take a few minutes just to share the burdens that we experience here, we would all confess life is not perfect. Sometimes it's not good. In fact, sometimes it's just downright hard. We're in desperate need of a change. Of someone to interject themselves into our story and to change the trajectory, the path that we're on. Ultimately, we need grace. We need someone to make this right. You see, Paul takes us directly to the answer today. He doesn't beat around the bush. He takes us to our next point, which is that we are in need of redeeming grace. Look at verse 4. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You see this is where that redeeming grace enters into the story this It's in these verses that the story actually changes for you and I. This is where everything changes for us. You see here, Paul's addressing what can actually change the human heart. What is so powerful that it can change who we are. You see, I think verse 4 is one of the most significant transitional thoughts in the Bible. We, we hit this, but God... We have Paul articulating that our story was without hope, that we were condemned, we were worthless and meaningless. And then God came into the story and changed it all. You see, our story is only going to change when God positions himself to come in and to change it. I want to be clear again that nothing nothing is going to get us into heaven but the free gift of grace from God through His Son, Jesus. You see, this is the great mercy that we see displayed here. This great mercy that God would seek to offer His friendship to His enemies. That God would go to these people in rebellion and call them His children. You see... Paul tells us that God interjects himself into our story because of the great love that he has for us. Because of the great love that he has for us. Took a little bit of Greek in seminary. Let me tell you what that means, great love. In the Greek, it means great love. And in fact, it actually probably is closer to like mega in terms of not great, but mega. It's trying to get this, this connotation that this is a big unfathomable love that's coming across. I'll be honest with you. I've been looking at this text for almost two weeks now, wrestling with this passage and meditating upon it. And I'll be very honest that I still cannot wrap my head around the depth of God's love here. That he would choose us condemned wretched sinners who are in rebellion against him and say, you are mine. You are worthy, not because of anything you've done, but because of my free gift of grace. I will willingly give my son for you. As I even considered this, I thought, there is absolutely nothing that I will trade my son for. Nothing. Yet God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, was willing to send his son to pay the debt of sin for you and I. Not just was God willing to send his son, but Jesus willingly bore that burden for his brothers and sisters so that we might be adopted by his father. Isn't that just an incredible truth? The layers and the nuance there, just it blows my mind. The truth is that this love is the costliest love that it could ever be. That this is the greatest cost that it could ever cost to love someone, yet it's a love that required God to pay a sin, to pay the debt of sin for you and I. You see, it's a beautiful, incredible, awe inspiring love, and that is what Paul is trying to get across that we should be driven to all because of this love. That we should look upon it and go, I can't wrap my head around this. Of course this God is greater than I because he would willingly do something like this. Now Paul's not content to just speak of this love, right? He wants to talk more about what's happening here because understand we have to recognize who we are in light of this love so we know what it is we are to do. Paul tells us that just as much as we were dead in our trespasses, we've now been made alive together with Christ. We were dead and hopeless. We were dead and hopeless. Now we are alive with Christ and hopeful. I know it's an inelegant play on words, but it's true. It's one of the great mysteries we see here. One that again, frankly, I've just struggled to wrap my head around. I think it's ultimately rooted in the fact this love that is displayed is so otherworldly, so foreign to us, so beyond our capacity of love that we just struggle to understand it. The truth is that you and I, we can't love in this type of way. Only the God of the universe could love so freely, so generously. Now, as we read this story and we hear this love and the great mercy that God has for us, to be honest, we could consider the story done if we just stopped right here. Like, this is a beautiful picture. This is the picture-perfect storybook ending we've been chasing for. This is the better story we've been hoping for. But wait, there's more. Not only do you receive this great love and mercy, but... God isn't content to end the story there. You would think that, hey, we've gone from being an enemy to being a friend. This is a good enough ending, right? This would certainly be a good place to stop. Yet, not only has he made us alive together in Christ, but he's made us co-heirs with his son. See, this is what Paul means in verse 6 where he says, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. We have been lifted up beside Jesus, not due to our own works, but due to the work of God and of Jesus. The riches of grace that he will pour out upon Jesus are being poured out upon us too. We are undeserving of this, yet we are being served by the very King himself. This is an important concept for us to grasp. This co-heirs with Christ. The truth of this illustrates that when God looks upon us, he sees not our condemnation and our sin, but he sees the righteousness of his Son. And he has elevated us to a position where he views us as equal to his Son in some degree. Certainly, we recognize Christ is in authority above us. But when it comes to his showering of riches, of grace, of mercy and affection... He pours lavishly upon us, just as he would Jesus. What this means is that God is holding nothing back, that everything he would give and do for his own son, he would give and do for us. You see, for all of eternity, he's going to call us his and shower us with his grace, just as he does with his son Jesus. Isn't this a beautiful picture of assurance and rest in Christ? Isn't this a beautiful picture that unlike most sibling battles, we have to fight to find out who's the better one? We all know who's the better one and it's Jesus. Yet the Father does not hold that against us but says, you are all my blessed adopted children. We have rock solid concrete assurance that for all of eternity, we will be Is This is what redeeming grace does. Can you see how that rest, that assurance, changes our story and makes us more dependent upon Christ and not our own power? This is the beautiful message of the gospel. That once we were condemned rebellious creatures and now by redeeming grace, we are co-heirs with Christ. Just like every Disney story, the princess has become royalty. We have been elevated. It's a beautiful, beautiful message of the gospel. Now, again, as I've said, the story could end there, and it's a beautiful series. It's a beautiful story, one that we close the end credits on, and we go, this is good. Yet in the midst of this, not only have we found our identity but we've actually recaptured our purpose. You see, in this, we've found a recaptured purpose. Look with me at verses eight through 10. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. You see, Paul isn't content just to leave the story there, though it would be a good place to end. You see, he's continuing to share this better story that we have found here in this last section of the passage. A crucial part of this better story, a crucial part of this better story is not just that we have a new life, But we're returning back to the original creation mandate. That God is restoring things and making them the way they are supposed to be. You see, back in Genesis, as we paraphrase a couple of chapters of the Bible, God created the heavens and earth. He created humanity. And his command to humanity was to be fruitful and multiply. We were to spread all over the earth, not only filling the earth with people, but doing works and deeds. That's what that fruitful means. Now, why? What's the point of that? Why would he give that command to his people to be fruitful and multiply? You see, the point of this is so that throughout the world, everywhere you could go, that there would be a living, breathing image of God who's performing works that would honor and glorify God. The point of the creation mandate was that humanity would spread to the ends of the earth so the whole earth would be filled with a reflection of the glory of God. That's the purpose we existed for. Therefore, I think as we look at this, that Paul is describing a recaptured purpose for us. We couldn't fulfill this purpose in our lives before we were saved because we were out to glorify ourselves, not God. Now, in this story, we've returned to the original mandate, which is rooted in making much of the name of Jesus as we live, work, and play. He begins this whole section with reminding us that we have been saved by grace through faith. See, he's... Two points here. One, he's illustrating that you are never going to be good enough to save yourself. Nothing you can do will ever make you right with the Lord. But he's also showing that because of that, someone had to come into your story, had to come move in your life first. God in his grace had to reach out and he had to convict us of our sin. Yes, we did have to respond in faith, but God had to be the one to make the first move here. Remember, we were in rebellion against Him. We were actively choosing sin over God. He had to be the one who offered the peace treaty to make things right because we sure weren't going to do it. You see, this work of grace is not by our own works, by our own deeds. It's a gift of God. It is a work of God. Jonathan Edwards once said in a sermon that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's an incredibly powerful statement for us to reflect upon. So many times we believe that God called to us and rescued us because we were good in some way. Perhaps because we had talents that he needed or could use. Maybe because we were going to do great things. Maybe because we had something to offer to him. All of those are lies. The truth is that God called to us and rescued us because he is good. He rescued sinful people because he is a good God. For us to boast in our salvation for any reason is wrong and sinful. We can only boast in the good that Jesus has done and the wrongs that we have committed. You see, Paul wants us to have a proper perspective of God in our lives and in our hearts, most importantly. Because what he's trying to illustrate, and he's just asking this question very simply, is Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart? Or does something else rest in its place? Is Jesus sitting on the throne of your heart? Or have you moved him off like he's an article of clothing or something? You're scraping off the chair and put something else in its place. Paul's getting into the nitty gritty because he recognizes the human heart. John Calvin once said of the human heart that it's an idol factory. We will find something to worship if you give us five minutes. You see it all the way back in the Old Testament, right? You see it in the story of the Israelites. They've escaped, the, they've escaped Egypt and they are waiting to go to the promised land. And Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments and he's gone for a few extra hours. And they say, he must be dead. We need a God. Go make a golden cow. I'm paraphrasing a couple of chapters, but it's the gist of it. We are idolatrous people. We'll find something to worship. And Paul is reminding us that if we keep Jesus sitting on the throne of our heart, we'll worship him, we'll boast in him, and we'll seek to honor him. This all culminates up to verse 10. The entire story builds to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, Paul leads us down this entire road so that we could properly understand who we are so that we might know what we should do. I've said this earlier, but we don't know how to live unless we know who we are and what it is that we're supposed to value. And in this passage, Paul is trying to show us that we should value this gift of grace that has been freely given to us. It's an undeserved, costly grace, but it was freely given that you and I might have life so that we might find a better story. See, now that we can see this, now that this has been made clear to us, we can truly find our purpose in this life. See, Paul is making clear for us that we exist to make much of the name of Jesus see, Paul describes this here as God's workmanship. And I've never looked at what the definition of workmanship is. And I'm glad that I did this time. Because it describes this idea of something, this workmanship is the description of the, the quality of the product, the skill and labor that had to go into it. Like you describe something as having fine workmanship when it's a beautiful work of art. Paul is describing us as the product of all of God's skill and labor. He's not casually using this word. He's drawing our attention to the care and effort that God used to not only create us, but to redeem us. You see, just like a high quality work of art, we are on display to the world. We are on display to the world So that those who are far from God might look upon us and think, wow, look at what the God of the universe can do. This is why he says we've been created in Christ Jesus for good works. The intention here is always that we would perform good works to glorify and honor God. John Calvin once wrote that it is faith alone that justifies but faith that justifies can never be alone. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. You see, the Bible talks a lot about works, particularly in the New Testament. And the word works can perhaps best be described by putting God and his goodness on display. There's not a hard or formal description of works throughout the New Testament or throughout the entire Bible. It's really characterized broadly as something that is in line with God and His Word that would put His glory on display. We even recognize that these works aren't just things that we're performing in a vacuum. We're not just casually running out there doing things. That these works have been prepared before us so that we might walk in it. To make it simple, it means that God has a plan for our lives. God has a plan for our lives. This isn't an impersonal plan that leaves us as robots being held captive by someone. No, this is the grace-filled plan of a loving father who desires the very best for you and I. This is a plan so that we would prosper, so that we would flourish so that we would grow and thrive. You see, it's this idea of this grace-filled plan of a loving father that I want to close on. Are you comforted by this fact that you have a loving father with a plan for your life? You see, this fact, knowing this, that this is a part of our story, this should lead us to experience joy Yet, I fully recognize that for some of you, what you're hearing from that is not joy, but fear, anxiety, worry. You see, if there's a lack of joy over this fact that the loving Father has a plan for your life, then there is a lack of grace in your heart. You see, for the Christian, that means that there is something other than Jesus on the throne of your heart that you've swept him off and placed something else there, you need to repent and return to the Lord. For everyone else, this means that you need to receive the free gift of grace from Jesus. You also need to repent, not to return to the Lord, but to the first time come to the Lord. You see, it's only through repentance that we can find our better story in Christ. As Paul has written this passage, as he's addressed the human heart, he has said there is one truth, that we are condemned by our sin and we need God to rescue us. Perhaps today is the day that the Lord has called to you to be rescued. If it is, in the next few minutes, we'll have a time of silent prayer and I'll close us in prayer, praying over you, praying for the Lord to move in your life. Our worship team will sing a beautiful rendition of Amazing Grace. And my hope and my prayer is that not only would you sing this song just because you're here, but you would sing these words that my chains are gone because they have been broken by Jesus himself. Because you have repented of your sin and experienced the free gift of grace. That is my prayer for every one of you today that you could experience the grace of God and repent. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Would you bow your heads? Father, we come to you today as people who are recognizing our sinfulness. Not a one of us is perfect. We are all guilty of sin, sin that we have committed, sin that we have willingly done. And Lord, as we look at our stories, we recognize where we have been. We know that we only can find hope and forgiveness through you. So, Father, it is my prayer that today for every man, woman, and child who is listening, that they would see, hear, and respond to the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to pay for the debt of our sin and shame. That he was crucified to the cross. That he died a death that we deserve to pay a debt that we could never pay. And it is by this free gift of grace that if we trust in Jesus... We not only receive forgiveness of sin, but we receive eternal life and assurance that we are yours, Father. So Lord, would you allow the Spirit to convict us of our sin, to break our hearts, to open our minds to the truth of the gospel that we desperately need a Savior. Father, it is our prayer that you would move in a mighty way that you would fill this place with your presence, that the people of God would see your glory today by rejoicing in a forgiveness of sins that they've received and proclaiming the good news that Christ is seated on the throne. Father, we are grateful for you. We're thankful for this gift of grace that you've offered us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.